What's up, Asymmetry? This podcast is profound and worth every minute of the listen. The team took a trip up to the Pacific Bonsai Museum recently to explore the current exhibit on World War II Bonsai, Remembrance and Resilience. For this podcast, I got to sit down with Aaron Packard, the museum curator, and Nancy Ukai, who is the director of a digital project called 50 Objects Slash Stories, The American-Japanese Incarceration. This project calls attention to the unjust incarceration of Japanese Americans in the United States in the 1940s through found artifacts. It was such a pleasure to have Nancy, who is an extremely well-spoken researcher. Hearing her personal perspective as a Japanese American with family members who were incarcerated is invaluable and helped to shine a light on the complicated history of bonsai in the United States. I hope that this episode gives us all a peek into what our history textbooks left out, and it also helps us to further understand the deep history of bonsai that we put our hands on today. So thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Thank you so much for uh, for uh, giving your time. I really appreciate it, and it's super informative and helpful to have you join us. Um, Are you Eve? I am Eve. I am indeed. Oh, great. I should nice probably start with that. Yeah, I'm Eve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a project manager at Bonsai Mirai, um, and we're we, at Bonsai Mirai. We've done a lot of collaborations with PBM in the past. We're kind of close bonsai friends, you could say. And uh, I, I personally don't practice bonsai, but I do know a ton about it just because I've I've been uh, learning it by filming it and capturing it for the past three years. So um, this was when we were told by Ryan that this exhibit was going on up here. I mean, that we just, we had to come up and, and capture it and just learn way more about it. And um, so it's it's a privilege to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks. So I, I guess I wanted to um, ask you about how your uh, involvement with the current exhibit began. Uh, Aaron was showing me your website just a little bit about the found objects. So I was, I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Well, like you, I am not a pr practitioner, and to the extent I know about bonsai, it's through working on um, researching two objects, what we call them, for our 50 Objects website project, and that's where we take a curated collection of 50 objects to look at the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans, and I was so excited to do one on a bonsai tree in the PBM collection, the Domoto um, maple, and because it's living. Um, and then we did a second story about cement containers, which were made at the Thule Lake camp. And so um, through researching those, and then also talking a lot with Dennis Makishima, who is a Japanese American in the San Francisco Bay Area, who's a teacher and a student of bonsai as well, an artist. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the Japanese American roots of bonsai in the United States. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, what's so? What's your your background, um, and and how are you um, involved in all of this? Well, I because I'm thinking about World War II and artifacts um, for for bonsai trees, and um, World War II is one part of its life. As you know, they live for years. Right. Um, but it's been the World War II was transformative. And it left permanent scars. It left scars on the trees as well as on the people. And they're not always visible. And in fact, if you don't really excavate the stories, you're not going to understand the impact that World War II had on not, not only the trees that are in the exhibition, um, but also on the people who created um, these trees and styled them and worked on them. 
Um, and then that has implications for how bonsai is practiced and thought about today. So I actually haven't had a chance to go up to Seattle and see the exhibition, but I just can't wait. And I think it's, I'm very grateful to the Pacific Bonsai Museum for opening a window onto this history. Um, it's, it's an occasion for education and for reflection. And also in this period now when there's so much um, thinking about systemic racism um, for how the kind of social issues and, and war have affected bonsai. So thank you for having me. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to just have been um, connected to you, Nancy. And I know, you know, um, your work, apart from the work we've done together on the bonsai front, um, but even having you now being brought into the world of bonsai and you being bringing your researching background and your connections to the the Japanese American community community have been so enlightening for me and, and have added so much more um, quality to my own understanding and expanded that. Like I've, uh, I just want to at least reciprocate the gratitude um, and thanks um, that I have personally uh, to be able to, you know, uh, work with you too. So um, yeah, Nancy has uh, helped, you know, as a, uh, as one of the you know, editors, uh, I would say of the exhibit, um, you know, we wanted to make sure the information we were presenting and that I was trying to collect and 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 go through was uh, being uh, shared with community members um, and those people who had, you know, not just uh, an interest in it from an outsider's perspective, but were directly connected and also. Uh, researching the same time frame and the same kind of topics so that the voice of the exhibit was accurate, not just to kind of the bonsai side of things, but the but the experience of the uh, community that that went through it. So Nancy's provided that uh, that context was has been super essential and and helpful for the exhibit having the the proper tone. Um, I should say, I could add that I'm the daughter of immigrants. Um, my On my parents, my father and my mother's side, um, they were from Japan, from Shizuoka and Nagano Prefecture, and um, came around the turn of the century in the 1900s. Actually, on both sides, there were nurseries and gardens. Um, huh. I inherited none of the <laughs> raised any kind of plants, but... Um, I'm extremely interested in it. And both my parents and my grandparents, many of my aunts and uncles, um, at least a dozen relatives were incarcerated, mostly in Topaz, Utah. Um, and so they, while they weren't engaged in the practice of bonsai, I've become very interested in thinking about Japanese American culture and what is Japanese American culture today? Bonsai isn't really a part of it. Mm -hmm. And so then I started to think, why is that? Why are there not many Japanese Americans doing bonsai? And that led me to think about many things um, having to do with shame, um, the violence enacted on Japanese Americans during the war, a loss of identity, and rejecting some things, I think, like bonsai, at yes. least for my generation. Hmm. Yeah, that's I, I definitely received that message while reading um, some of the signs throughout the uh, museum. And that was that was really striking to me because I had never even thought about that. It's like, why, why is it not highly practiced amongst Japanese Americans still today? And then to understand it as, as um, just a time where um, all, you know, all things foreign, this, this just absolute, you know, fear that, you know, comes from ignorance caused so many people to 
hide or burn or just bury um, any sense of their culture. And that's that's a deep, deep fear. And, and that's, I mean, that's really lasting and it has made lasting effects on coming generations. Um, I'm curious, Nancy, um, do you know why your family immigrated from Japan uh, many, many decades ago? Um, on my my paternal side, uh, my grandmother apparently wanted to study the piano, which is kind of strange. Um, and she ended up coming over to study music mm-hmm. um, and married my grandfather. And on my paternal side, my maternal side, um, I'm not exactly sure, except that my grandfather was very um, adventurous. And so in his 20s, he actually went to Mexico and then he was in Mexico and where he learned to make Mexican food because one of my mm-hmm. chi- mother's childhood memories is um, eating Mexican food, <laughs> which in a uh, Berkeley neighborhood, mixed neighborhood was kind of an interesting thing. That yeah. It, she has memories of Japanese food. But at any rate, he um, actually was a shoe repair, had a shoe repair shop. But in the Japanese culture, that's considered to be kind of a low status or um not a good job because it's connected with leather and puts you in the class of being basically sort of what's considered an untouchable class mm. because you work with leather, which is against Buddhist principles. So he switched into gardening and in fact had a whole bunch of hybrid experiments, um, which he lost during the war. And the UC Berkeley professors used to come and visit him every once in a while to see what he was up to because he was doing interesting experiments as an amateur. Mm. But at any rate, he had a, um, he had um, cut flower nursery, and it's interesting that whole area now is an extremely lively uh, shopping area where there's an Apple store, and they'd be shocked to see how that part of Berkeley has been transformed. <laughs> Nancy, I didn't, I didn't realize your family's history had some type of horticulture sort of associated with it. Do you think your grandfather, do you think he would have known some of these early like, would he have known the Demotos and um, any of the other sort of early nurserymen in that area? I feel sure that he would have known, like, Homei Sayama. Uh-huh. Um, he would have known Toichi Domoto. And mm-hmm. uh, because they, to, Domoto, of course, was a big name. So I'm not sure that Domoto knew my grandfather, although it turns out my paternal grandfather had um, property near the Domotos. So it's very likely they knew each other. But that's a kind of interesting thing you learn when you do land record research mm-hmm. and archival research. And then in a very interesting coincidence, my husband and I bought a home in the Berkeley Hills, which um, was built in the 1950s. And I happened to go through the um, archives at the University of Pennsylvania just to see uh, what the, um, oh gosh, the very famous landscaper um, designed some of the gardens. At any rate, um, Lawrence Halpern. At any rate, one of his suppliers was Domoto. Oh, really? Uh, Domoto's huh. son, Toichi, yeah. right? Toichi, yeah, that's who he had most of the trees from. Toichi, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was a shock to see Domoto in wow. the garden in the house where I now live after so, having done research on, on So the- some of the plants, do you have any do you think any of the plants are original to that design? Some of the trees or I do. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that's a uh, you know, the, the the thing that's kind of struck me, too, in researching the exhibit that I didn't fully appreciate is, you know, the the skill of just the Japanese culture's skill with horticulture and plants, right, is kind of, it's almost synonymous in, in a way. And we know that a lot of the, the opportunities for 
Japanese Americans in to to get a job was usually associated with landscaping, gardening, horticulture, nursery business, farming. And have you done much research into the connection of the Japanese immigrants to Hawaii and their sort of uh you know the 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 immigrants to Hawaii were being brought there for their sort of horticultural knowledge and 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 working in the sugarcane plantations and pineapple plantations and then sort of immigrating to the West Coast, as far as I know, but it just seemed like there was a an incentive if you had horticultural knowledge or experience that it was almost like uh like it was it was you you found more opportunities in that realm. Therefore, you have a higher concentration of Japanese Americans who just had that skill set. I mean, is that what do you, what do you think about that? Um, I wish I knew more about the Hawaiian situation. And Dr. Franklin Odo, who's written about Hawaii, would probably be a good person to talk to, mm. um, Ted Skiyama and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very important place to, obviously, Hawaii and then the movement to the West Coast mm-hmm. is really important. I wish I knew more. Yeah. I've, one of the um, items that I read, that that piece that's up in the uh, installation on the far side with the barbed wire and mm-hmm. that and that old wood. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the name? What's the name? Of the artist on that. Um, um, that is the uh, Juzaburo Furuzawa um, pine and Nancy. Um, or you connected us to the Isayama family. Um, that was the one that was stolen. We had that. That tree was actually stolen in February of last year. Oh, oh um, no! That was one of those. Mm-hmm, yeah, <sighs> we had a theft, and that one and another one were taken in February. Um, with the intention of that tree being kind of the centerpiece of the exhibit that I've been planning. And so it was not only heartbreaking to have that theft, but then to just think of the impact to the to the potential exhibit um, because it's sort of right in the middle. And that tree's story being really so icon- so unique in that it can trace its provenance to being germinated in a you know by from se- by a seed in um in one of the in one of the camps and then taken with the 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 individual upon the release to then become a bonsai i mean as far as i know we sort of are talking about these these heritage plants that nancy has in her yard that can trace their connection to um some of these early japanese americans so for that one to be traceable to a camp like i don't know of any other bonsai that have that provenance and if they do we just probably don't know about it but there wasn't a lot uh, of of trees that sort of came out but that's sort of what nancy's focusing on with the 50 objects is the objects that were created and and trying to a lot of the times they were just left behind or they were discarded because a lot of them were made more as a um in need, as a necessity or a response to the conditions and then you're not going to take the you know these certain objects the furniture you made in camp with you because you're going back to your home and, and you know you're probably going to want something different so anyway it's just interesting to have that tree yeah. here um and for it to have had its its whole that tree that tree as a tree having had its experience as a seedling or seeds that were sent mm-hmm. to then be a seedling and have this entire um growth and maturity to what it is today alongside the japanese american you know culture and right. it, and it also having kind of this story of um being misplaced or forgotten and then you know stolen again like mm-hmm. even today it's mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. stolen and i'm i'm so right. relieved that it's back because it has a really powerful impact in this exhibit I think another interesting part of that story, which is an example of how stories get erased, forgotten, or simply not told, is that he was forced to give up his nursery, which he owned Mm -hmm. in Berkeley, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, yeah. in you know in 1942, I presume, mm-hmm. um, and it exists today. And mm-hmm. I found that through um, looking at his address in his um, records in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then going, oh, I know that nursery. And uh-huh. on the website, it says family owned since 1942. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, again to sort of see these bonsai these early bonsai practitioners, you know, it was almost uh, not to be too broad of a statement, but many of them were uh, nurserymen by trade and bonsai was this kind of side. I wasn't even something that they did like professionally. It was more just a hobby that they had, you know, it was more the landscaping and the the hybridization and the importing of, of plants from Japan was really their main sort of, um, their main business, but all of them sort of had bonsai as just a component of their their culture. It was more of a cultural practice than it was a professional practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I think that's the most important po- point when you think about Japanese-American bonsai, because Dennis Makishima refers to it as a folk art. And mm-hmm. as, as you just said, Aaron, it was something that was kind of an adjacent hobby Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why Japanese Americans today are not really doing it, because um, there was kind of a racist labor situation that didn't permit Japanese Americans to have other jobs which interface mm-hmm. with the public. You know, if you were maybe you mm-hmm. could have a little shop where you sold to other Japanese Americans. But, you mm-hmm. know, gardening and landscaping is an entry level job for immigrants who don't necessarily mm-hmm. speak the language. Mm-hmm. And um, it became the default position, you know, low paying, but something that you can do. And then you start networking. And um, and I think the next generation and Dennis said this was my father was a gardener. I don't want to be a gardener. They want mm-hmm. us to get into a, a, a job where there's more security, there's more prestige. And so being a gardener and doing bonsai was not necessarily something you would aspire to. Um, And so that kind of bonsai has baggage. Um, Mm. And so I think, you know, that gardening profession um, is is one of the reasons why you don't see people my age and my generation um, continuing to do it. Not to mention the fact that it's very labor intensive. You have to be a special kind of person to really love it. Sure, sure. Um, But yeah. also, I think it's what's interesting is that maybe not for the wider community that practices bonsai now, which seems to be mostly white. Mm-hmm. Um, bonsai, I think for Japanese Americans, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but it becomes kind of a stereotype and a trope that represents mm-hmm. Japanese Americans. And so, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not necessarily positive. That might be changing. Mm-hmm. And certainly something like um, Mr. Miyagi doing it and the karate kid uh-huh. kind yeah. of reframed it a little bit. But when you think, oh, it's a small tree, its roots are bound, it's perfect, it needs to be worked on with great diligence and attention to detail, it's not exactly something that, um, you know, suggests Mm. a robust uh, example of American masculinity, for example, right? Mm. Um, And so I think Mm. for my generation, it might be considered something like kind of quote unquote what might have been called in the old days oriental mm-hmm. um, and a stand-in mm-hmm. for being Japanese, which after the war was negative. And after the war, Japanese made in Japan meant cheap stuff, chopsticks. Mm-hmm. It didn't, mm-hmm. you know, this was before the days of Sony and Nintendo and luxury cars, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I feel like my generation um, didn't learn Japanese, um, weren't necessarily um, suggested to go into the 
associate ourselves a lot with Japanese. And people have said that Chinese Americans don't have that kind of um, that kind of history or feeling that they need to reject Chinese language and Chinese practices, but that the Japanese, after they were released, were actually told by the government, when you resettle in Ohio or New York or wherever, don't associate with other Japanese Americans. Don't create a community where you'll be more targeted. We're trying to let you assimilate into the culture. And so those were actually the government instructions. And you can imagine that during the war, when Japanese was the language of the enemy and people literally burned their letters, they burned books, they burned Buddhist um, documents. Language had was charged and it was something that you didn't want to associate yourself with. And so you have this period of people in my generation rejecting Japanese and feeling ashamed of, of, of it. Like I, I remember being an elementary school student and seeing pictures of you know, in a textbook of, say, an elderly white grandma with, you know, glasses and hair and a rocking chair reading a story to her grandchildren. Well, my grandparents were immigrants and didn't speak English. And I was a little kid and didn't speak Japanese. And I remember wishing, oh, I wish my grandmother spoke um, English. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think I should learn Japanese. Um, right. And I did learn, I did study Japanese in college, but it kind of took a long time to kind of rethink my identity and why I needed to learn more about my ancestral heritage in Japan, but also become proud of what Japanese America um, has been in American history. Mm. Yep, that brings me to my, my next question. I've just been so curious about is, um, at least in your family, how you know, how much did you learn from them directly about their experiences in internment camps? Was it something that was unspoken or has it, you know, come to light more in recent years? Um, I think my family was um, more, was rather unusual in the sense that my mother talked about it um, fairly freely. Unfortunately, we didn't ask um, too much about it, but she would occasionally say something about Um, being incarcerated at Utah. And she was very upset and would get very emotional when she talked about a man who was shot to death, um, an immigrant man who was walking his dog inside the fence at Topaz, Utah. And in fact, the 78th anniversary is going to be on April 11th um, um, next month or this month. So at any rate, uh, she did talk about it. My father too, they talked about it a little bit, but um, but I, of course, we didn't talk about it enough and we never learned about it in school. So it really took yeah. um, going to college and reading about it on my own and being involved with the ethnic studies, studies movement in the um, 1970s, which, which got me more interested in it. But, um, but I never really thought, what does define being Japanese American now? And bonsai isn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think World War II has a lot to do with that. Mm. Yeah, so maybe you can just also speak to that that tendency you talked about your your unique experience with your family being unusual in that they talked about the the war and their incarceration experience. But um yeah, why why do you think that is? I mean, help kind of unpack the the reason that there is not as much information uh, you know, about that era because I mean, my challenge as a researcher, and as you know, as a researcher, you're you're wanting to know those questions of why and looking for that information. And 
And I think it's such a challenge to, and that's where sort of 50 Objects comes in too, is you're trying to capture that information because it's not widely known or told or recorded. Um, so yeah, can you speak a little bit more to just like, what is that about or why is that? Um, you talked about shame a little bit, but but yeah. Um. Well, I think it really speaks to what's going on now, which is um, people of color who haven't seen, we haven't seen our history in the American textbooks sort of saying, yeah, there's always been, there's been Asian, anti-Asian violence in this country ever since um, people have been here. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I haven't heard the term Asian American in the news so much as now, ever. Um, mm-hmm. It was a surprise to hear, you know, President Biden saying this and Kamala Harris. And, and I think that um, United States wants to think of us in terms of our ideals and justice and equality and things like incarcerating 110,000 people without trial because of their race and basically ethnically cleansing the West Coast doesn't really fit in with that narrative. And so, and it doesn't get treated and we're not in charge of writing the textbooks. And so I think with social media and um, the ability of people to put out their own narrative more and also the growing sensitivity in society, such as the Pacific Bonsai Museum, these kinds of narratives, which have long been untold, are coming out more. Um, And then in terms of the Japanese Americans, I think there's a sense of shame um, and people have likened it to being a rape victim. You feel like it's your fault that you're hated. You're hated so much that you're put away behind barbed wire. And I've talked to people who said when we went into the camps, we thought, you know, we're putting in horse stalls and horrible with animal smells and with no running water um, and in a barren room, boy, they really hate us. <laughs> um, and so there's a strong sense of internalized guilt. And I think with the redress movement, there is this ability to come out in the 19, in the 1980s when there was this push to get reparations and have the story told before the government commission in order to press for an apology and reparations that at last um, people could speak and know that it would go in the congressional record, some of the things that they experienced, and including my mother. So at home, if you'd said, Mom, you know, what was it like in camp? She'd remember some of the funny things that happened, and she did talk about Mr. Wakasa being killed. However, um, I happened to be living in Japan and um, when she was going to testify, and she sent me a typed draft, which she wanted me to read, And it was very serious. And she talked about all of the losses and her anger and the fact that um, when she applied for a job at the Library of Congress, she said, I had questions hurled at me like the Gestapo. And they actually asked me why there was a photograph of the emperor in our Berkeley house. This is in Washington, D.C. And she said, I thought, oh, my gosh, they must have, you know, gone and looked at the house. This is for a job in the cartography department at the Library of Congress, of all things, because, you know, you go from being a suspected spy to working with maps. But at any rate, um, I was really surprised because she said, I heard, she ended her essay saying, I heard that some people who protested in Washington, D.C. were asking for $25,000 for three nights of being in jail. And she said, if that's the case, $20,000, which was a symbolic reparations payment for us losing three years of our life is, is nothing. And if I do, I will buy a lot of flowers to put on the grave of my 
deceased father who, because he was gone, wouldn't receive any payment anyway. So I realized at the time that what she said at home was very different from what she wanted to say in public about her experience. Um, and so I think that kind of voice is is perhaps coming out more, especially with the younger generation who feel more entitled and they don't carry some of the baggage of um, the generations that were immediately affected. Hmm. Is um is any uh so you're saying that the records that your mother wrote is any of that public is it uh in archives? Is um, it... I would be happy to share that. Yeah, I, I would. I I would be fascinated to to really read into that. This is um like like you said, it's not in history books. She included as um an exhibit um a paper that she needed to carry on the train. She was an art student in Los Angeles, and she wanted to go to Berkeley. Um, because she didn't want to be sent to a different camp. It was known that everyone was going to be expelled. And so she took the train from L.A. to Berkeley, and it says um, uh, she had to be fingerprinted, and it says something like, so-and-so, your name, a native of what country? And in the blank, the official wrote, native of USA. Um, but she submitted that as as evidence of how she, an American citizen, was treated as an enemy. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I'm I'm curious if you know... If either of you know, um, and throughout your research, very much about this um, roundup process, because I was looking at that sign, the the government printed sign, and I just, I can't imagine, you know, like going to the grocery store and then just like seeing that posted. Like, what do you? You're like, excuse me, what? I'm supposed to report with my sheets and my clothes, and I'm going where? You're sending me where? <laughs> like, just mm-hmm. what? And it that that posting that poster, the date was dated. March 15th and it wanted everybody to report March 16th. So is it, was it really just like put some posters up and it's like, everybody go like, is I'm just curious about what that looked like. Yeah. I wish I um, asked her about the details, but I know that um, people, you know, when you are under pressure to get rid of all your belongings in five days, you take the wrong things and you let go of the, you know, you're just under, you're panicking. Right. And so um, I, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Um, they were actually lived in a um, Latinx neighborhood in Berkeley. Uh, it was a mixed neighborhood with Italian-Americans, too. And she did say that um, the Italian-American families were able to kind of walk around because there was a curfew and the demarcation line. So her father couldn't walk um, on the south side of University Avenue in Berkeley. But she said, oh, the Italian-Americans, because they were you know, seen as white, were able to move very freely. Um, so there were, that was there was wow. that kind of um, feeling, and I know that my uncle, who um, died at the age of ninety nine two years ago, he ended up never coming back to Berkeley and becoming an architect in Massachusetts. But he wrote in his um, memoirs or some an, a piece he wrote that he was kind of relieved to go to the Tanferan racetrack south of San Francisco. He said because when he was walking around the streets, there was so much kind of hatred being directed at him. Mm and people glaring at him, that to just be in jail basically gave him a sense of relief to at least be spared that kind of um, feeling in public. That's so telling. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, just to add on a little bit to that, you know, from my understanding, it ranged in terms of the amount of time that people had. It wasn't a lot, but it could, it was as short as five days to a few weeks, you know, uh, to that notification. Um, What's really fascinating, at least in terms of 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 history uh, that's connected to the Pacific Northwest, is that the very first 
community that was forcibly removed was on Bainbridge Island, just off the uh, in this in the Puget Sound area, just off uh, west of Seattle. Um, and that um, community was one of the older Japanese American communities um, on the West Coast, um, and predominantly um, you know farmers, uh, agricultural. And there's even some uh, stories that one of the main sort of uh, nursery nurseries there on Bainbridge, um, the the owner was a bonsai practitioner, had his own bonsai collection as well. Um, I haven't had too much time to do research specifically on that individual, but um, that, for example, was more of the one that was a, a faster, um, you know, almost like a test case for how they how the military was going to go through this process. And uh, you know, here just. Uh, up the up the road, so to speak, was where that sort of first first occurred on the wow. on the west coast. Um, but yeah, I mean that sort of then ties to the as Nancy said, knowing what what you take and what you don't, and and you know the um, how that impacted bonsai and a lot of a lot of bonsai practitioners up and down the west coast were either um, trying to figure out ways of disposing of their collections, and so um, there's a story of uh, Frank Nagata, who is a very well known very early bonsai practitioner and a few of his friends, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Sam Doy um, and uh, Morhai Fruya were sort of the really early Los Angeles um, bonsai practitioners that sort of went on to found the the California Bonsai uh, Society. And we heard know of John Naka now. He was sort of the young guy after the war that sort of joined their group. But they were attempting to kind of sell their trees. They've sort of put them out on the curb, you know, on the main kind of road outside of their their homes with, you know, for sale signs, or um, they were even able, though, to, to bring a few of them with them, um, which was kind of a rare thing um, sure. that, you know, not many people were allowed to bring much with them. But um, from the stories that I was able to locate, um, they were able to bring a, a small kind of group of them with them to camp and then eventually, um, you know, use those to stage a bonsai ex- exhibition at the Amachi camp, which um, as far as I know that's the only sort of like bonsai exhibit that was a, that possibly occurred in the world um, during or at least during World War II was being yeah. held in the incarceration camp at oh. Amachi. Um, so so oh, anyway, bonsai. it was a huge thing, you know, for, for people who do bonsai, you know, you want to make sure that it's going to be cared for. So some people might have been planting them in the ground and sort of yeah. hoping that they survived. That's sort of the the Demoto maple that Nancy referenced earlier that was in a very large wooden grow box because the tree was so big and you, they couldn't do much with it. And so basically was left where it was, but the, the bottom of the, the wooden box had, had rotted just due to the age mm-hmm. and time it had been there. And the tree had roots that were in the actual ground itself. Wow. Um, and sort of that's the main way that that tree sort of survived un, uncared for um, for the three plus years that the family was um, incarcerated. So it's a very, um, very much a metaphor to the assimilation of of that tree sort of Mm -hmm. assimilating to its environment to survive. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. This piece right here at the entryway um, is, is really stunning. It it says so much. The, the, the the dead tree, the dead tree with Mm -hmm. the, with the pot broken, just kind of like the Akadama spilling out. Mm -hmm. It's very, um, it's, it's so moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That tree specifically doesn't have a direct connection to the, to the um, world war two era. It was a tree in our collection that did die. And Mm -hmm. so I thought it at least was an opportunity to use it as kind of a attention grabbing focal point and also help people get prepared to see some, to encounter some content in the museum. That's not necessarily, um, 
easy or sort of light. You know, you come yeah. you come to a to a bonsai museum. You're sort of expecting to see certain things. Peaceful garden, right? You're looking sun, for a yeah. little bit maybe <laughs> of you know enjoyment of the of the outdoors, and yeah. now you're being confronted with some some pretty challenging um, information. Yeah. And that was at least an attempt to set the stage for like, hey, you're going to be um, encountering things that you probably aren't expecting to. And so just be ready for that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Aaron, is that tree actually dead? It is. Yeah, it is actually dead. Um, it died, unfortunately, kind of a, a slow, slow death as we attempted to save it with as every tree that we that we do. And when it finally died, the there is a practice in, in bonsai, and this is not just sort of my idea, but in, in Japan, the practice of preserving sort of the remains of a very significant tree and still displaying them as a as a sign of reverence to that tree in death, even as in life, right? It speaks to the the not just the the tree in and of itself, but then I think it also um it re it represents the the people that cared for it too. So there is this practice in Japan of of very famous trees, even when they die, they're they're displayed um, in their pot, you know, as almost these sort of um, skeletons or, you know, to, to what the tree sort of was. Um, and so that beauty still in that beauty, finding beauty in death um, of the tree too is kind of a component of bonsai. Not to say every dead tree needs to be preserved and kept, but at least for uh, for that one and in our museum, it seemed like a fitting connecting point to the larger practice of it in Japan and then to sort of helping, um, you know, challenge what you think are what provide visitors a chance to kind of be challenged and in, in what their expectations are and in coming into the, the display. I, I think it's incredible that you open your exhibition with a dead bonsai tree mm -hmm. I mean, on so many levels. And I haven't had the opportunity because of COVID to right. actually see it in person, mm -hmm. but I feel it begins with a prayer mm -hmm. because you have this dead specimen mm -hmm. there for us to respect. And if you think of bonsai as almost members of a family mm -hmm. and people have talked about them as being like pets, mm -hmm. you have to work on them every day. You can't go on vacation. You know, if somebody says, how much do you want for that? You're insulted because mm. it's like saying, you're going to ask me to put a price on something that mm -hmm. I've worked on for 40 or 50 years and mm -hmm. we're friends through this. And mm -hmm. so um, it makes me think of a few things. Number one, I'd like to talk to a little bit about um, what Dennis mentioned to me is how people have taken the bonsai material of deceased practitioners mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe not knowing or not understanding the history of that person mm -hmm. taking those trees as stock, basically, mm -hmm. and going like, oh, wow, this has age mm -hmm. and it has heritage. And now I can remake it mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. styles certainly do, you know, age and, mm -hmm. and, and ideas change and techniques advance. But I thought it was quite interesting when he talked about the fact that um, – if you knew the person who made that tree and somebody else comes along and says, oh, I'm going to, it needs a facelift. It needs a do-over. You can see how um, mm -hmm. that would be taken very personally, particularly when you think of how that person survived a lot, including World War II. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was interesting that when you talk to Dennis, he says things like bonsai is a symbol of toughness, survival, the will to adapt and an invitation to a dream world. So it's a lot of things. And I don't know how people nowadays who enter the art 
think about um, bonsai, but thinking of it as tough and survival strikes me as kind of an immigrant, mm-hmm. possibly, mm-hmm. attitude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a few points that are interesting to talk about, but continuing on this idea of the 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 toughness, the ruggedness, the resiliency of trees, right? Is this larger conversation, right? It also the most prized, you know, material in bonsai are the ones that sort of exhibit the m- more tortured life life experience, right? The ones that have had a more challenging existence and yet despite the challenges of the environment or whatever sort of life is thrown at them they've found a way to continue to go forward and move on and i think that's a, a very fitting you know symbol for um in particular the japanese american people um i think that that speaks you know very very much of their of their um resiliency despite extremely challenging events in their history. And, and that's where I, I think, you know, you're bringing up this um, idea too of collecting bonsai in the wild. Mm-hmm. That's nothing I'd ever heard about. I've always thought, you know, mm-hmm. oh, bonsai are these almost preformed, beautiful, very highly stylized small trees in a pot. But when I found that people actually, and this is a practice in Japan, mm-hmm. but it was transplanted here by people like Harry Hirao and uh, numerous people, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you've gone on these trips, um, it grounds the practice, the Japanese practice in the American West. And mm. you can see the way nature survives in extreme conditions. And it makes you conscious of a certain aesthetic. It's not like a bonsai, which I'm going to stray into language that's probably not welcome, but it's like, oh, it's more like a poodle. It's mm-hmm. highly trimmed and it's mm-hmm. kind of this green lump. Mm-hmm. But no, there's this other side of bonsai, mm-hmm. which is rugged. Mm-hmm. And you're getting hundreds of year old, whatever, ju- junipers, junipers. Mm-hmm. and then digging them out and pruning them. And I mean, I just think that's a really interesting aspect of bonsai, which the immigrants brought in. And you see a lot of blog posts of people going, wow, I did this. And they show their SUV or their truck and they're putting these hundred pound things, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, with a big ball root into their truck, mm-hmm. making that into a bonsai. I-, I wish somebody would do a documentary on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, and what's kind of fascinating about that, um, the the focus on and the valuing of collected um, material, and the Japanese word that is used is is yamadori, right? Mountain collected. Um, that practice of it, you know, like you had mentioned, coming from the Japanese practice of collecting in the wild. Um, nowadays, it's it's almost become so popular like that's sort of almost the standard now for judging a tree's quality there's more of a rejection of the nursery cultivated material everyone wants a a a yamadori right that's that's sort of the the um the 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 aesthetic and the sort of the the in vogue i guess for lack of a better word but what's interesting is that in the post-war era right we have the people like you know john naka and and harry harrow and and these really early um, Southern California um, practitioners who were not looking to cultivate the um, Japanese species of of plants for bonsai. They were the ones, they were the first ones going out and finding the California junipers and the Sierra junipers and the redwoods and actually utilizing the native plant material, which also now when we talk about kind of like what's in vogue with, with bonsai practitioners in the United States is an emphasis on native collected material where, excuse me, Whereas post-war, um, you know, white practitioners were very much more seeking the 
Japanese black pine, Japanese white pine, Chinese juniper, the more, uh, you know, um, what we would call, um, you know, exotic species um, from a botanical standpoint, right? They were not the native plants. So, so it was just interesting to think about now that the, the main practitioners of bonsai value these native wild collected trees, the Japanese immigrants and early practitioners, they were sort of the first ones to identify them as a source of, of bonsai material, right? Um, and so it, again, it's just sort of, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, as uh, sort of where we are today, um, that, that appreciation of native collected material started with uh, the, the early post-war Japanese American practitioners. Well, and I think what's interesting is that in the case of, I learned that in studying the um, Fujimoto cement pots, where mm -hmm. he made these bonsai pots out of cement when he was incarcerated at Tule Lake, um, that he was actually in the 30s going into the Sierra Nevadas mm -hmm. and um, collecting wild bonsai in the wild or material. Mm -hmm. And then it was after the war, though, that these clubs, which you're talking about, were formed. And, and that's my understanding anyway that um, it was after the war when these exclusive clubs formed, which were meant to kind of create a community after the neighborhoods and towns and had all been broken up and fractured and people didn't necessarily return to the place where they had been before the war. But bonsai was a way to share techniques and have a community and appreciate beauty. Mm -hmm. And the classes were held in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't speak Japanese, you're out of luck. And mm -hmm. as you know, mm -hmm. Aaron, um, mm -hmm. you know, the out, quote unquote outsiders, the white community who was very interested in this art, it's fascinating, weren't allowed in. And apparently there was a tension between the people on the quote inside who have this knowledge and have this technique and, and have a lot of the quote unquote secrets and thoughts about how to do bonsai and then the quote-unquote outsiders it was pretty demarcated not the case now and so um it's interesting to me that john naka didn't go to a camp mm -hmm. um and i wondered if that is part of his ability to see bonsai as this art which was inevitably going to disperse to other communities mm -hmm. and he was willing to do that mm -hmm. and what's interesting about dennis makishima is he was a japanese american he didn't speak japanese they didn't. They, they didn't um, make any accommodations for him either. Mm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's not just race. It's just like you're an outsider, and you got to pay your dues, and you either got to learn Japanese, which is really takes a long time, right. yeah. or you have to sort of prove yourself, and or maybe there'll be some leakage. And indeed, a few people would take him aside, and they think, "Gosh, you've been coming for a few years. I'll translate you for, for you what's going on." So um, I think it's interesting that. There was this tension about do we share our 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 what we view as sort of our property? Mm -hmm. You know, we were screwed during the war. We lost everything. You can't take this from us. Mm -hmm. There was this sense of protecting kind of um, knowledge, what we would today call appropriation. Mm -hmm. We're not going to allow you to take our culture. Mm -hmm. um, don't appropriate us. Don't appropriate our identity, our artistic pursuit, and we're going to keep it separate. And of course, you know. Um, things change. But when you look at the art today, I think the result is that, you know, ultimately, I keep returning to the question is, why are there no very few Japanese American practitioners today? And I think World War II is, is the trans, it's that mm -hmm. point where mm -hmm. things changed. Yeah. Um, 
And it's interesting to think, what would bonsai be today without the war? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, Nancy, you just hit it right on the head. I mean, that's kind of the whole question of the exhibit. At least that's where we started with the exhibit, trying to answer that. And I think as we continue to try to answer that, it was clear that there was a lot of, there was another important point of the story that that we needed to focus on, you know, which was the incarceration event and the treatment of Japanese Americans and how they, um, you know, despite that, some who were exempt from that experience, like um, like John, um, you know, being born in Colorado and then moving to the to LA after the war, or individuals who were incarcerated and then, um, you know, I think of like uh, Kelly Nishitani, who was a Seattle bo- Seattle-based um, bonsai uh, practitioner um, before the war, had a nursery, and then. Um, you know, was reluctant to engage with um, Caucasian um, students and then sort of eventually came around, you know, um, that tension is something that I was really never, I never considered as, as something that existed, you know, in bonsai. Um, you just sort of always thought the, 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 these early teachers were, you know, you just, you just never connected that experience of the, of the war with their their experience of, of being a bonsai teacher and kind of what that meant for them. So, so yeah, I'm curious to know if maybe you could speak to a little bit more of that, that tension. Do you think that like, what would, what would be the motivation for, uh, you know, a, a, an incarcerated survivor to then choose to, to do bonsai? Cause there's a few individuals here. Um, one, uh, in the Bay area, um, um, Ken, Ken Sugimoto, he was, uh, is sort of credited with having the very first sort of bonsai exclusive nursery, which was in Palo Alto. Um, he opened that, I think, in 1952, 53, so very shortly after the war. So he he opened a nursery to sell bonsai on a, at a commercial level. Um, but so, yeah, I'm just sort of curious to know, you know, where there was some hesitation by some, but then also was that just kind of their only, they saw that as their maybe only opportunity for um, for an income, like kind of like you're saying with, with, with gardening, like, was that, I'm, I'm sort of looking for some context as why you might think, um, some chose to still engage in bonsai, even having gone through that experience. You know, that's a really interesting question. And I don't think there's any single simple Mm -hmm. answer. And I think there are people in the community who, after the war, and I bring up the rape analogy again, where you want to get in the good graces of Mm -hmm. the perpetrator, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like you want to be liked and Mm -hmm. you want to do something that will make them um, feel good about you. So maybe you are, you know, Mm -hmm. that's that one, that's one scenario, right? Or maybe it's just as a practical matter, you're running a business, Mm -hmm. you know, and hey, this is going to happen and I'm going to ride that wave. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think they were, um, according to Dennis, there were four people who were, you know, integral in starting bonsai in Southern California. And I can't remember the details. I really want to do more research on this. Mm -hmm. But the one person who was very much against opening it up, I believe, ended up leaving the United States and returning to Japan. Yeah, that was, um, that was, I believe it was Sam, or no, it was uh, not Sam Doy. I'm sorry, I don't want to misspeak. I, it was, he was basically the teacher, and we have a photograph of him. He was the earliest teacher in, that, that I know of in Los Angeles. He taught Frank Nagata, um, and yes, he, he had an extremely challenging uh, you know, experience from incarceration, I believe, you know, either he lost his wife or a child during that experience. 
and just returned to Japan totally, you know, um, re- you know, rejected and never came back to, to, to the U.S. But he is credited as sort of being the, at least from the L.A. contingent, um, kind of like the, the grandfather of John Naka in terms of the bonsai lineage. You know, he taught, he taught the, the teacher of John Naka, so to speak. At least, at least, you know, we know John went to Japan and his grandfather did that too. But from a sort of community early um, uh, standpoint, you know, 19, we're talking like 1920s um, era in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I would love to know more about him. Well, and I think you bring up a really important point, which is the lineage of the teachers, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. Who's your teacher? What, who, who influences you, your way of thinking, your techniques, your approach? And there's great deference to teachers. You don't take over a teacher's class until basically they die mm-hmm. or they give you permission, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of fracturing where he physically leaves the country mm-hmm. for whatever reason also mirrors a greater fracturing within the community mm-hmm. between people who said, you know what, which we see today um, of we have to prove our, even though we're United States citizens, we're going to prove our loyalty by mm-hmm. joining the military and possibly giving up our life while our parents are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And then other people who say, I'll fight, but first you have to free my family. And therefore I'm not signing the loyalty questionnaire in the way that you want. And so I think in bonsai, you can see um, larger phenomenon that occurred during the war. Mm-hmm. And this was a very important story. And the fact that Virtually nobody knows it mm-hmm. except for you, Aaron, and a handful of people who mm-hmm. either knew them personally or are students of the history shows you how the history gets buried, it gets mm-hmm. erased. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it's an important thing to talk about because I think you talk, your exhibition is called World War Bonsai. To, bonsai. Yeah. World Rem- War bonsai. Resilience yeah. and remembrance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm 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 glad that you didn't use the word reconciliation mm-hmm. because that does give us the happy ending. We kind of want to hear like, oh, mm-hmm. everyone re- reconciled and mm-hmm. we're all holding hands. And but in fact, there's a lot of tension, there's community fracture, there are scars within this history for Japanese Americans. And what's interesting is we don't even know this history mm-hmm. <laughs> because People aren't around anymore to talk about it. It's not really been written down. And it's not the way of people in Japanese American culture to talk about themselves or Mm -hmm. write about, you know, this history that's not that pleasant, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty tragic history. And so um, I think that this story, if it comes out, and the fact that you've done this exhibition is really an opportunity to keep the conversation going. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron uh, Shigaki's work, as, as you exit the museum, really kind of wraps it up for you in a way of like just presence. Um, and that stunning image of the woman holding the baby, uh, there was just like dappling sunlight sort of moving across it. And cause, because of the way the, the structure um, of PBM, sort of as the light moves, you get really harsh shadows, but you also get really nice dappling as well from the trees. So um just kind of this contrast of light and shadow that's naturally occurring on top of these images, um, you know, these original images of people that were in the camps. It's, it's a very surreal experience. It feels like you're really, you know, at, you know, an internment camp exhibition Um, and the images of little kids and the man with the gun and, you know, an elderly gentleman smiling. Like it's, it it really takes you there. Um, And actually I have to backtrack real quick because you said, um, a loyalty questionnaire. And I'm just, I'm just curious what that is. I actually don't know anything about that. 
Um, well, people, the government issued um, what was known as uh, application for leave clearance, mm-hmm. which um, it, the, the government wanted to start releasing people out of the camps, both to reduce costs and also, you know, eventually they thought we're going to have to close these things. So if we can keep people out of the West Coast, which was a military zone from which Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants were excluded, they could go to other parts of the Midwest or the East Coast if they passed this questionnaire, which was supposed to determine their loyalty. Mm-hmm. And um, so, for example, my mother ended up going to um, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and then Washington, D.C., because she answered the two, there were two questions that were determinative, number 27 and number 28. And one asked you if you would forswear loyalty to the Japanese emperor, which was very insulting because for an American citizen, you have no loyalty to the emperor. Mm -hmm. And for the Issei immigrant generation who were by law not allowed to naturalize, Mm -hmm. um, if they said, I forswear loyalty to Japan, which they may not necessarily have had because they've lived in this country for 40 years, Mm -hmm. they then have no country essentially. And so it was a very um, controversial and badly constructed questionnaire. The other one was said, would you serve in the military? And so to Mm -hmm. these two questions, some people said yes, no, or no, yes, or no, no. And if there was any kind of um, question about you, the government kind of uh, stigmatized you and put you in a category of being disloyal. And then you were sent to um, the Thule Lake camp, concentration camp in in, um, the northeast corner of California near Oregon. Um, And uh, that was a maximum security camp with 24 guard towers and triple barbed wire and Sherman tanks. And it was very um, tense situation. Um, And it was a badly done thing because people said, well, gosh, why didn't you give us this test before the camps instead of hurting everybody into, you know, barbed wire Camps in Idaho, to, Arkansas, to fear, Utah, Colorado, just, Wyoming, Idaho, etc. Yeah. Um, and families split, yeah. split about this. I know somebody who was in one camp and the father was so upset. He was an immigrant. He said, I want to go back to Japan. I've given up on this country. His children who were American born didn't want to defy their father, but they um, wanted to stay in the United States. And so there was this plays out in many different ways in families all over um, in every camp. And there were, you know, people who were, we now view as, as rightfully so as resistors, but at the time within the community were like, a lot of people said, gee, you're making life difficult for us. And now <laughs> people who hate us are going to think, see, they are disloyal. They deserve to be behind barbed wire under guard tower sentries with guns. No, no, within the Japanese community. Yeah. And so I think too, I mean, Nancy, you're sort of touching on the, that, that post or that during the war. And then I, I going back to the Demotos, I, I believe they even had family who left for Japan, you know, prior to the incarceration, because people kind of could, could read the sort of signs and the, you know, read, read kind of what was happening. Um, and so there was even, you know, the choice to, to leave the U S prior to that, just again, splitting up families that had been you know uh, extended families that had been living together in, in in sort of these communities. So some stayed, some left um, before that as well. So it wasn't just the you know the the post war kind of era. It was sort of before and and even after. So yeah. Um, what did the um, so then when we get to this period? So obviously there's some people who are you know getting out via this 
prejudice questionnaire. <laughs> and then what what was the you know the ending of this? What you said, Tool uh, Camp uh, Tule Lake. Tule Lake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was sort of you know the the ending of that and and what happens? It was just kind of like we're we're shutting down, take your bag and go somewhere somewhere else. Like how how does something like that conclude? <laughs> Well, people became more radicalized because, first of all, your your civil rights, your rights as a citizen um, are being abrogated. You're being treated as less than. You're being treated as an enemy. And so some people, understandably, did become radicalized and more kind of nationalistic towards Japan. Um, but uh, what was your question? But uh, people did were um, going to be deported thousands of people um, were going to be deported to Japan. Um, but then at some point, it became clear that number one, after the war was over, and um, Japan was impoverished, and there was really no way to survive in this country that was bombed and, and people were starving. Mm -hmm. um, some people decided, many people decided, gee, I've made a decision under duress. And even my family is saying it's not the time to come. Um, and, you know, this is the country, you know, this is your American, this is your country. And so um, many people did were able to get their, um, their papers uh, um, reversed, that decision reversed. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's a graphic novel that's coming out um, next month called We Hereby Refuse Japanese, Japanese American Resistance to Wartime Incarceration. And it's, um, being it's written by um a seattle-based author frank abe hmm. so i can send you that oh, link yeah. that'll be great to, yeah. to hear about that yeah and i think too just to just further talk about that the overall like conclusion to the incarceration period too is that also what you were asking about yeah too? yeah because like, I, I just when i think about like learning about this it was one paragraph it happened and nobody ever talked about the ending and obviously there was no reconciliation there was yeah. not like right yeah so nancy i mean do you want to elaborate a little bit more just on the closing of the camps and kind of how the government basically was also almost having to evict and and force the 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 people that were now in the camps back into the communities because they you know there was also that like you said that that existing um prejudice and hostility still in the in the post war kind of uh america um, I just wanted to mention before we go to, into that, that there was an attorney named Wayne Collins who, gosh, single-handedly for decades helped the Japanese Americans who didn't want to return to Japan or go to Japan, um, help them with their legal work. And, you know, a lot of people, they didn't know lawyers, they didn't have money, right. they were just um, devastated. And he is a true hero. Um, so I just wanted to mention the name of Wayne Collins and, and his son still lives, son still lives um, in Berkeley. And I'm sure there will be um, a lot of discussion of what he did next year, which is the 80th anniversary of when President Roosevelt mm -hmm. issued Executive Order 9066, mm -hmm. which led to um, the incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're talking about the end of the war, you know, a lot of people like my mother and, and Nisei, the Nisei who were young in their 20s, you know, I, I know I remember one man who we researched and said, I felt so guilty, but I had to get out of that prison or I was going to explode. So he left and he went to college. Um, and actually, he was, th you know, nobody wanted to live with him. And it was some colleges would accept a Nikkei student, but the community didn't want them or the community was receptive. But the college, you know, it's very fraught. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, 
the younger people between being drafted into the military or volunteering for the military, which was much less, or going into college or finding jobs, were beginning to depopulate the camps. So by the end of the war, you really have mostly children and um, the elderly left behind. And there's some very poignant um, descriptions in the uh, diary of an administrator in Idaho who literally, they were dragging elderly people out who didn't have friends left. They didn't have a job. They figured they couldn't start over because they're too old. And um, he talks about, too, walking through the barracks and finding half-open cans of food, stray cats, stray dogs, because people had to leave their pets behind when they went into the camps. But then strays wouldn't appear in these camps over, you know, the course of three years. Right. And then they left them again. So it's just this landscape of devastation and people leaving in a hurry. So again, it's mm. you think, oh, gosh, when in 1942, people were leaving in a hurry and leaving behind their bonsai and the bonsai were getting stolen. Um, one man in Los Angeles was saying, he said, I really remember I was, um, he was around 18. He said, we had this big bonsai on our porch and one night it disappeared. Mm. And you think, oh, in the big scheme of things, that seems small, right? But it stays in his memory. Mm. And he said, I guess they figured we were going to go anyway. Mm. So at any rate, I'm saying you're displaced, put mm -hmm. in the camps, and then you have to leave mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're given a deadline mm -hmm. and given a $25 stipend and a ticket, put on a train or a bus. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, you're displaced. And so I think artifacts for me are a very interesting way to think about the people who had them after they'd lost so much. Mm -hmm. What are you making inside of the camps? Why are you bothering to carry it with you? Because mm -hmm. a lot didn't get taken, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of bonsai, you know, if people did start to make things like cement pots or in the case of Furuzawa, growing a tree, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that these things have survived are really miraculous, but mm -hmm. let's not project our narratives on it. Let's really try and do some digging and find out what the true story is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I can mention this too. Um, this is something my mother would talk about, and she put it in her testimony. When they were packing up to leave, and my mother was like 21, my grandfather was maybe in his 50s, she said he had packed a box um, in addition to their you know, suitcases. And she thought, oh, snacks, tools, blankets. They got to the Tan Fran racetrack in San Francisco, south of San Francisco. They opened it up, eucalyptus leaves. Hmm. He filled it with eucalyptus leaves. Wow. And my mother said, she, she, she said, oh, you fool. Why did you waste this precious space with these leaves? And he said he loved the smell. It reminds him of Berkeley. Uh -huh. And he didn't think he'd ever see them again. Yeah. yeah. And she said in her testimony that I regret yelling at my father and my anger should not have been directed at him, but at the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. But that's the case where the object does not exist anymore. Right. They didn't carry the eucalyptus leaves back, but I find it very poignant um, because as you know, eucalyptus are so fragrant, they're very pungent. And so for me, and I live in Berkeley, it's, um, it's a connecting narrative. Yeah. Well, just as you said that once you said uh, eucalyptus leaves, I mean, I, I am from Southern California too. So, you know, in the cool evenings in California, if you're out kind of, at, at that twilight hour, you get the smell, that sort of peppery, sweet smell of the eucalyptus. So immediately you have that sense memory. So just to think about that, um, 
And again, going back to the, just the connection to plants and how important they are to to people, whether they're they're bonsai or they're just the the trees that line your street or the the eucalyptus trees or whatever. Um, wow, that's that's extremely powerful. That's a lot. I guess that's a large part of what makes home smell like home. When you think mm. about like like I'm, I'm somebody who's moved around a lot, but whenever I go back to you know a certain town that I've you know experienced or lived in for mm-hmm. a while. Um, a, a smell will hit you, and it's typically just because of what the trees that are around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 really interesting. And when so, you think about um, people who work with plants and the earth as you do, um, the sensory power of putting your hands in the earth, right, and mm-hmm. wiring and watering and mm-hmm. see the growth, and really, people were sent to these desert areas. Mm-hmm. They were barren, and so you know, and a lot of them were in agriculture. And of Mm -hmm. course, and did put their um, skills to work for the government because then they had to grow food to feed themselves. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's poignant because we can think about artifacts, but we're also need to think about are the human relationships Mm -hmm. that they represent, that they were made for gifts or that they were made under the tutelage of a teacher Mm -hmm. and the smells and the feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why I think your exhibition is is very special because you're outdoors mm-hmm. and you're seeing survivor trees, mm-hmm. uh, which may outlive us. Right. Hopefully. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the story is really powerful. Yeah. And I think one of the questions, too, and you sort of touched on it as we were talking about your grandfather and knowing some of the the early Bay Area nursery nurserymen. What do you think the level of sort of interactions inside the camps were? So if if. If someone was in a camp who practiced bonsai, what was the likelihood that they sort of sought out or naturally kind of heard through, you know, friends or whatever? Oh, so and so down in Barrick, whatever. See, he does bonsai. I mean, was there that sort of? Do you think there was that sort of um, community building in the camps as well, where where people with similar interests like bonsai might have met and then formed? Those, we talk about those early clubs forming. Um, maybe the camps in some way served as a way of sort of gathering the, those at least familiarizing uh, community members with each other and their and their interests. I'm curious about that. I, th- I think that's a great question. And, you know, the camps would have as many as like, say, 40 blocks. It was mm-hmm. done in military style. And each block would have like, uh, oh, gosh, what is it? Like 20 barracks. Mm-hmm. And there would be about two or three hundred people per block. Right. So. That's it's 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 a large area and you may not know people outside of your block or even Mm -hmm. if you do, you have to walk 20 minutes to go see them. And Mm -hmm. you're walking along all these military style, you know, very regulated grid like formats. And so somebody who's doing research on gardens is Koji Lao Ozawa, who's an archaeology Ph.D. student at Stanford, and he's doing it, um, his research at Gila River, Arizona, and because it was on a Native American reservation, um, people are not really allowed to go there on the land. Mm. And it's been pretty well preserved. And what Koji's done is d- done drone photography so he can kind of see the footprint of the land. But he's also done this extremely more um, micro uh, research with uh, ground penetrating radar. So you can see um, where people have dug out basements because it's hot. You can Mm. see where koi ponds have been made Mm. and you can see gardens Mm. and his whole research is on gardens. And he can, he said, you know, certain areas, there are a lot of gardens going on because people are working together, or maybe there's kind of a beautification project where you build something like a line Mm. of trees around a mess hall 
which mm-hmm. becomes the area where people come together because they eat there. But when they're empty, maybe they're used for an exhibition of crafts or something mm-hmm. like that. So I think that's a great question. Um, and yeah, Manzanar has really huge gardens, which are extremely well preserved. Mm-hmm. And um, they have an archaeologist who's specialized um, in looking at the gardens and things like that named Jeff Burton. Mm. Um, I can send you that link too. He's done an amazing work mm-hmm. on, on, on these gardens. And so bonsai is kind of a subset. Mm-hmm. And um, I know Ted Matson knows a lot about um, mm-hmm. some of the particular examples. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we've, were, we've been in touch with Dr. Bonnie Clark, who is uh, an archaeologist for um, the, um, I believe it's the University of Denver. Um, and she's been excavating Amachi, which kind of had, at least from what, what I've found, the highest concentration of bonsai known bonsai teachers um predominantly from la and the bay area so that's where the demotos ended up was was at amachi um and uh frank nagata and um so yeah and i even just trying to track down where they lived in the camp you know there was some somewhat they were closer together than they were further away so there was the likelihood that they you know were you know hypothetically uh, you know engaging with some uh, conversation at least maybe about, about bonsai, but, um, we have on exhibit here, um, several artifacts that were excavated from Amachi and, and one of them is, a uh, uh, a tin can that has been pierced in the bottom, you know, by a nail or something basically as a makeshift, uh, plant container, um, for, 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 for gardening use, um, that's been on loan by the, by the university. Well, as you know, um, Aaron, there's um, Alan Eaton, mm-hmm. the folk art scholar um, who is working for the Sage um, Foundation in New York City, took an interest in the folk art that was being made inside the camps. And he published a book called Beauty Behind. He collected, made a collection of things in 1945 as the camps were um, closing and he wanted to document what was going on. So in his book, as you know, there are a lot of photographs of like small tray landscapes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, where people are recreating a small natural landscape with twigs and, mm-hmm. you know, plants and, and things like that. And then he showed um, Ikebana classes. Mm-hmm. And he also showed cases where for an exhibition, um, somebody who was maybe a florist would have this incredible chrysanthemum. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they got this, mm-hmm. but would train it so that 200 blossoms would bloom mm-hmm. time to, you know, happen when the exhibition occurred. But um, my question would to you and Eve would be, what is realistically the perspective of a bonsai practitioner knowing that you may, you don't even know how long you're going to be in a place, a year, two years, three years. You don't know, frankly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, we can look back now and go, okay, the camp, the last camp closed in 1946, but at that time they didn't know. What would your attitude be towards starting this project where the tree may take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to cultivate. Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And I've sort of had to think about that too with the, the Furuzawa pine, right? It was not, when we talk about bonsai being practiced in the camps, we're not talking about them, you know, starting from a seed and having even the time to develop. It would have been a three-year-old seedling, you know, when he was released. And so, um, as you mentioned too, the fact that it even was taken with him speaks to, you know, at least the, the, some level of significance to him, but that chrysanthemum that you're referring to, I, we, uh, we have a copy of that book, um, uh, in our library and, um, chrysanthemum bonsai is, is actually a thing. I mean, it, you, uh, use of chrysanthemums for bonsai because 
they have such a short developmental time within two or three years, you can create kind of this uh, bonsai, this sort of bonsai-like form and structure um, to them. So that might have been more of a natural selection of in terms of plant material to try to cultivate and develop into bonsai. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. And then, you know, I don't know to the extent, just like they would, there might be, there might've been some level of, of collecting of Yamadori, you know, cause these were all in these Western States that we sort of know now to be kind of where the, those potential trees existed. Um, and even just seeing, um, in the Ikebana arrangements, the use of like Rocky Mountain juniper or Western juniper that have these really beautiful contorted branches that they are inserting into their their um, arrangements, you know, uh, again, sort of look almost like a bonsai. Um, so just kind of that awareness of the that that in that native environment, I think, too, kind of connects nicely to this idea of the of the you know the native plants that on the west coast being utilized for bonsai. Then you sort of see then as the Japanese communities were being relocated to these very varying varying um uh environments from you know the deserts of arizona to colorado and 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 um california right um like isayama collecting um these pieces of of slate that he was carving into inkwells and teapots or um you know uh the greasewood which i still don't fully know what that botanical name is but referring to these sort of um this collected material of, of wood that they would then use for um, furniture making, um, where we have uh, George Nakashima, you know, who's a, who's an extremely well-known um, furniture maker. He sort of got his, uh, you know, start using, um, you know, uh, doing carpentry in in the incarceration camp, um, and maybe using more of the um, wild, natural, live edge material. That's more rustic um, in in his in his tables and chairs in camp. So so anyway, just sort of showing again, like using the the native plants, but also like you're showing too, chrysanthemums are not necessarily native. So you know, kind of like um, and the Japanese black pine seeds, right? There were ways for um, eventually um, them to order, kind of like Amazon for us today, right? You could through like Sears and Roebuck catalog order certain seeds seed catalogs and eventually get kind of these more uh, rarer um uh plants to to use in either in gardening and these larger landscape gardenings where they would combine um native material native collected plants with um maybe cultivated seeds and we see that tin can kind of speaking to you know seed cultivation or seedlings so so yeah it's just it's such an interesting again that larger blending of the traditional plants with the native plants and you can sort of see how that also ties to to bonsai as well you know i i'm I'm thinking too though that um like in the case of the domoto family toichi domoto you know horticulturalist um you know he's the bonsai family has a long history in nursery um so important to um california nursery history but you know his father died right mm-hmm. um in in the camp mm-hmm. and then a week later his uncle his father's brother died mm-hmm. and he had to have a guard go with him to attend the funeral which he then had to pay for mm-hmm. and so people have others you know really a lot of suffering on their mind and you can see on the one hand where maybe bonsai is a refuge mm-hmm. if you can practice it sure 
but you're also just inundated with life and surviving. Right. And um, a friend of mine and who runs what's called the Tessaku Project, and her name is Diana Emiko Tsuchida, she found um, an affidavit recently, and she said, my grandpa, if you don't mind me reading this, mm-hmm. I just Please. found this. My grandpa continues to be full of surprises, and we keep finding more hidden gems and documents detailing what he went through. So my dad finally found, recently found an original affidavit that my grandfather filled out claiming loss of property due to the incarceration. His answers are filled with frustration of losing everything in mere days. He talks about living behind his bonsai plants, Hmm. which I knew he was passionate about, only saw in a couple of old photos. In answering the question of whether or not he had to abandon property, he replies, yes, quote, tried to sell 65 bonsai plants, but no one would buy them. So they were left in the backyard. I tried to sell two cameras, but they were taken by the FBI. He goes on to explain that he only had one day to evacuate because he was busy helping an elderly man, Mr. Ota, who was in the first group to leave. Um, I believe they went to Topaz in Utah. My grandfather writes that the total amount lost, including a car, RCA radio property, and bonsai plants, amounted to $1,954.50. This today would be the equivalent of $33,549. Wow. I believe they were from the Bay Area. Wow. Um, so I'm just thinking he loved bonsai. Mm. Did he actually do it in camp? I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see coming out of them where if you do want to return to the art, you know, you would maybe join one of these clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Be a source of community and solace and repair and healing. And so. Um, wow. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I would love to see um, a copy of that or, or have, have uh, a little bit more uh, information on that, on that individual. Cause that's, you know, the more, and I'm so glad that you have your eyes out looking now for, for anything bonsai. And I love getting your, your emails or, or like you, what you found, because again, I think part of my goal too, hopefully for this exhibit, at least specifically for the bonsai community and, and people listening to this podcast who are practitioners is to, encourage them to become more curious about their own either club history if they're you know on the west coast or possibly on the east coast as well if there there were um, Japanese Americans associated with the club's formation or early teachers or practitioners and they are still around or even if they're not to try to learn more about that because you know you and I Nancy we're, we're two individuals and we are very passionate about this this subject matter but um, my focus is obviously on the trees that are in our collection, but there are, there are so many other little threads and stories that just did not make it into the exhibit or names of people that I haven't had time to research. Um, so yeah, I think, I think if everyone had a little bit more, uh, interest in, um, in looking into kind of bonsai history, we would probably find a lot more, a lot more there. Well, I, I also wonder, um, do you have rocks in your exhibition? Um, not, not like the Suiseki or the viewing stones. Yeah, no, we don't have any in the exhibit itself. Um, we do have sort of references to, uh, Homa Isayama, who we sort of haven't dove, dove in too much on him, but he was, you know, really formative early teacher in the Bay area, but, um, references to sort of the artwork he made in camp, uh, pr- related to bonsai, but no, nothing of that like. Um, the reason I ask is that, number one, people made bonsai. Now, whether these were bonsai people who made them, but there I've seen, and I think you might have in your exhibition, mm-hmm. examples of bonsai made of paper. Right. right. 
the the bark and the needles and you know a container mm-hmm. and you look at it and you think oh that's a bonsai and you go oh my goodness that's made of paper so that's one thing what do you do in the absence of plant material mm-hmm. do you use paper mm-hmm. or do you turn your attention more to rocks mm-hmm. <laughs> right right you know? right um, because there's an example and it's in Seattle area of um, Paul Kogita's collection hmm. where um who his father he was in Idaho his family was taken away from Seattle oh and when I interviewed him. He said he was a boy. He was maybe seven or eight. He said, I still remember us having to drive away and our dog barking Hmm. and tears came to his eyes. He still doesn't know what happened to his dog. But at any rate, his father went out of the camp when he was given permission and collected these large lava rocks. Hmm. And so in Eaton's book. Mm-hmm. You can see this very massive, monumental rock garden in front of the barrack. And it's mm. so big that when he's sitting in it, he looks small. Mm-hmm. But apparently when they left the camp, the government said, he said, what do you have to send back? And he goes, nothing except for these rocks. And they packed up the rocks, awesome. tons worth. Wow. And now some of those, or most of them, are in Paul's garden um, in Seattle. Oh, wow. Wow. And so um, that's another, it's not related to bonsai exactly, except that we're talking about gardens yeah. and the context and the landscape in which bonsai might fit. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. I mean, I think too, referencing Eaton's book, there's these, this idea of naturally formed objects that are of some sort of artistic value or interest and in the, the collecting of these, um, you know, uh, excavating these sort of like uh, gnarled root bases and polishing them and sort of displaying those in a very similar fashion to the suiseki of these, these burl, bur, you know, burls that are very um, similar, at least that, that strikes me. And I never sort of saw that practice um, associated with bones or even knew of it. That he, Eaton describes it as, uh, I can't remember the exact word, um, but he calls these types of wood pieces. Uh, there's a term kind of like kobu. Yes, yes, kobu. And um, especially people in Arkansas mm. um, took these pieces of wood and boiled it and took the bark off and then polished it. And literally some people had collections in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Eaton's book. And he talked to somebody who was in New York. And when they got released, said, I went to um, um, the park um, to look for Kobu. Mm. <laughs> And I think that sort of touches on like that, um, the the dead tree, right? In the beginning of the exhibit, it's just like this valuing of these wooden pieces of trees that have some sort of visual artistic, uh, you know, value, right? And that hunting, the collecting of either wild trees for material or wild plants and flowers for Ikebana or rocks for gardening or, you know, just that it's it wasn't one of like, I need a specific kind of... You know, I need to import these rocks from Japan. It was just like this is what we have, and having the aesthetic eye, right, which which um, which comes with that that sort of expertise to then be able to see what's around and utilize it in a way that's you know very very beautiful. Um, I think it's just such a, an amazing quality too. And I guess um, I, if I can just mention that you know, five years ago in 2015, there was going to be an auction of Eaton's collection. Mm. So I mentioned that Eaton, um, who was born in 1886, anyway, he was in Oregon and he was trying to make this collection of Japanese American artifacts from the camps. And he took a lot of pictures of these tray landscapes and, Mm -hmm. and Paul Kogita's lava rock garden and so on and so forth. He, um, died. And then in 2015, 
all of these things were going to go on auction as the Eaton collection. And um, the community rose up in social media, in the Japanese American community, in opposition to basically what was a commodification and um, commercialization and profiting off of things that our family members, our ancestors made while they were unconstitutionally confined, including Kobu. Kobu. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so... Luckily, that collection ended up in the um, it, the auction was stopped, and I think it was really an important turning point for people to really think about how things, including you know bonsai and living things, have stories and how we tend to admire how beautiful they are and mm-hmm. how people um, were resilient and made beauty under very pressing difficult conditions. But it's harder to look at the, the, the hard stories and the scars. And so um, the Japanese American National Museum now has the collection and is mm, researching all of the um, backstories, and I'm helping them do that. Provenance. So the provenance. And so I think that, you know, that's part of the bonsai story, too, which is tracing the mm-hmm. lineage of the teachers, mm-hmm. the material, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really so happy that um, this is continuing. Yeah, um, yeah and I, too. More Japanese Americans... <laughs> were involved, but I'm really happy that, for example, I was so moved to see that in the Huntington in Southern California and mm-hmm. San Marino, that they had something called the Pioneers of Bonsai, um, a plaque. Mm-hmm. And they actually, it says California Bonsai Society founded 1962. And this plaque was dedicated in 2012. And it has the names of founders and teachers and officers. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen anything like that anywhere else. But I think that to the extent that it acknowledges mm-hmm. um, these pioneers is is really important and and um, and something that acknowledges the roots of what we know as bonsai in the United States because bonsai in the United States kind of falls between the cracks of what's going on internationally mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's going on in Japan but in our country it has its own history yeah and so again I'm I'm can't wait to see the exhibition. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention that re- that recon- recognition. I was um, closing the museum last week, and um, I was I normally don't do that. Um, I'm usually doing something else, but this opportunity to to close, um, I was the only one here, and there was a group uh, f- who who was going through the exhibit, and um, uh, they were Japanese Americans, and I just you know was engaging them in a, a little bit of conversation, and it turned out that the um, the the daughter you know there was a sort of a, a grandmother the daughter and then granddaughter type type generations represented um anyway the the mother was saying along the lines that her that her father was incarcerated um at minidoka and you know the they they knew the kelly nishitani um you know they 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 knew him personally and they had knew his uh his sister i believe who was a, a famous dancer at the time i can't think of her first name um but anyway they were talking about the exhibit and, and their appreciation for it and uh suggesting that there be something that you know s- stays up in sort of remembrance or like you're saying recognition of of that um and i thought that was a wonderful idea especially coming coming from um a descendant of a survivor i thought that was extremely um fitting so so I would love to sort of do something akin to that, where we have somewhere uh, in in the display space or or in uh, you know 
the museum the museum proper uh, a a recognition of uh you know the the incarcerated um early teachers of bonsai at least represented in our collection well i think eve you know what mirai is doing and and you know what you're doing aaron at the pacific bonsai museum is something where i hope there can be collaboration in the future um because i think it is easier sometimes for outsiders to see things in the history that for us is so um, painful mm. and difficult to talk about. Maybe you can't, you see it, we all see it in different ways. Um, and frankly, I know people have said, wow, those white people are um, able to use Japanese or know certain terms, mm. which are kind of specialized in the case of bonsai. Mm -hmm. You talk about shohin or mm -hmm. kusamono mm -hmm. or shinpaku juniper right. it's Yamadori, kind of a hybrid right, right. right? <laughs> um and so i think it is a cause for reflection to think how come number one we're not practicing this anymore mm -hmm. how come we don't even know the language anymore mm -hmm. and i think it is an opportunity to kind of think about the effects of the war and racist policy and just feeling less than and that traditional art that your ancestors brought to this country um is something that you've maybe Maybe you've self-canceled, but before that, it was canceled by the larger culture because of the war and the exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just an example, but it's kind of like a case study, mm -hmm. and it's a window into this history that um, we haven't really had the opportunity to think about. Um, and so I, I hope we can dig deeper. Mm -hmm. Expropriation, you know, you can call it, I mean, there's a lot of terms that are being used these days. and um, it's an international art form, but when somebody is able to take the language, then they now have control over how it's framed and discussed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And the Japanese took that from the Chinese mm -hmm. and you right. know, it's a long history, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the Koreans and the Vietnamese, and I'm sure there's all different forms of practices which have their own styles and cultural meanings. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, being an American and being in the United States, I, I do like to, think about what our ancestors have contributed to what's a very lively and robust art, but mm -hmm. which, um, does it mostly male now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say in, in terms of like, uh, like active practicing, you know, practitioners and professionals, it is a largely male dominated sphere. Um, and, and it's, uh, something that actually really fascinates me. And I'd, I'd really like to sort of kind of break those boundaries a little bit. Um, I think it's just like, a um, kind of a lack of of there being this lineage and and teachers um that are that are females that are well known and they're definitely out there um and it, like Kathy Shaner is a really great example um it it just i just feel like sometimes you know that recognition you know doesn't go doesn't get seen as much and thus and thus it can kind of feel like a somewhat gender exclusive um practice um but we have uh, a good bit of, of um, female students with us and their passion is immense and, and really um, encouraging to me. And, and I didn't do bonsai before I worked at Bonsai Mirai, but it's something that I now want to move into um, just to kind of, uh, I think it, it needs a little bit more. I think there needs to be more females practicing it overall. So I hope that by getting into that, um, I can kind of figure out the, the reasons why that might be happening. Yeah, and I was going to ask to Nancy, 
you know, that's all that's true. And it's something that we're, uh, you know, I'm aware of as well. Um, looking at it from the history side of things too, it's interesting that I think there was probably more female practitioners um, in the post-war era, kind of in the 1950s, um, and and a lot more represented in the, the the earlier days of bonsai, kind of getting started. But I'm I'm curious too, you know, I mean, even in Japan, bonsai is ex- almost exclusively male, um, where you have that, um, you know, almost the the division sort of being ikebana being almost exclusively female practiced, and then bonsai kind of being the exclusively male practice. And so I'm curious from a cultural standpoint, Nancy, if you have any idea as to why that distinction exists. And obviously it was carried through into, um, you know, the U S Japanese practitioners, um, as well, because you see some of these early photographs of clubs and it's all male Japanese men as well. So I'm just curious. I don't, I don't have an answer to that aside from, you know, my own thoughts, but I'm curious to hear yours. Um, there's such strict gender separation in Japan Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can just see where if a woman wanted to study bonsai, Mm -hmm. would she even be allowed to, would Mm -hmm. a teacher accept that person, Mm -hmm. you know? And then once these lanes are kind of set up, women do itebana and it's considered to be something that, you know, you do with tea, which of course is male and female, but women would be it's almost considered like a finishing school kind of thing mm-hmm. in the old days and mm-hmm. prepare like, preparation like, for like marriage. Geisha, like almost geisha. Um, and yeah. same thing like with food, right? Are there f- famous women chefs in Japan? Um, mm. In France? I mean, it, there's certain areas, as you know, which mm-hmm. are just dominated by men. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's changing though everywhere, mm-hmm. I hope. Well, I think as you know, uh, yeah. And this, I mean, the World War Bonsai exhibit where we're focusing on the stories of Japanese American practitioners during the war, you know, I think um, an exhibit that I would like to do eventually would be, a, you know, a women in bonsai exhibit where we do kind of the same treatment of of uh, trees that we have that are from uh, female practitioners and, and teachers and kind of present their their stories in the same way, you know, at least for sharing that information to highlight their contributions over yeah. the last 60 plus years of, of bonsai Um because because they were there as well right again it, it starts it does it's just stories that are not told yeah. or known. i think it has something to do with um just sort of you know worldwide um throughout time a, a great artist is considered a male artist mm. and it's just kind of the the tautology of the word the great artist is a male artist mm. and so um it, that you have to attack on the word female artist and it has it becomes a different definition and, and sort of all of the um cultural implications coming out even just in the linguistics and the, the stories not being told as much. And I mm. think that would be, that would be a really great exhibit. I would look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the challenges for us is, is again, if, even underrepresented uh, examples in our collection are of female practitioners. Um, so, you know, it was hard enough to, to stage an exhibit with trees from Japanese Americans who had experienced incarceration right. um, to try to do that with, with an all female, uh, exhibit would be a challenge it's not right. impossible but it would be relying yeah, well, on work to source the, exactly. the information that has been for so long you know not highlighted mm-hmm, you're, you're doing mm-hmm. you're putting in the the work mm-hmm. on, on history that's and i think um well actually though dennis makishima's main um deshi in aesthetic pruning or his main apprentice mm-hmm. and person who is you know acknowledged as as his, his supreme student is i be, i think it's yuki nara i may be wrong 
but it's a woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, there's a book about pruning and how this woman goes to Japan. Perhaps you know it. Mm-hmm. And no. it's fascinating read because she has to break through first being an American and then being an, uh, a woman. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think as so you can talk about systemic racism and how it's embedded in forms of bonsai and the history of it in the United States. But you could certainly also talk about systemic sexism Mm -hmm. or a gendered practice. Mm -hmm. And that would be really interesting. Yeah. And Eve, you referenced Kathy Shaner. And I don't know if you know of Kathy Shaner um, as as the maybe that's who you're referring to um, as she was the first uh, American and a a woman to go to Japan to formally study bonsai. Um, And she's the she's the curator at the Oakland uh, collection in Lake Merritt. So um, Hopefully at some point you could even come go and visit her since she's just down the road from you. Yeah, I've seen her at the Golden State Bonsai Federation conference they had in the Sacramento mm-hmm. area maybe two years ago. And she was one of the people who was kind of performing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting Demo. thing to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the demos are always actually so interesting to me. The, the first time that I saw one was was actually at BSOP, but um, mm-hmm. just the... Uh, the idea of like presenting a live styling of an art form is, is so fascinating. Um, and I, I watched some of the bits from uh, the demos in Japan mm. um, that like Ryan was translating from older videos. Uh, and there's so many people working around this tree and it's like, it's almost like a sport. <laughs> like mm. everybody's getting it and it's this huge tree and they're all working as a team and they all have this like, it's it, the, the team mentality to be able to work on a shared piece of art um shared shared both presently by multiple practitioners but also shared historically mm-hmm. um throughout you know shared historically in terms of its design and evolution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think you know another interesting thing is just to look at bonsai as an example of performance art mm-hmm. because yeah. before i knew what the clubs did i said well what do they do do they go like a book club you go and talk <laughs> no you you bring your tree in and the teacher sits there and works on it yeah. And there's not a whole lot of lecturing, really. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, wow. And then when I actually went and saw it, I was very surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very Japanese. Yeah. And I guess that's a Japanese um, practice. Is that right? Well, the I mean, it just sort of is the model, I think, of of the the form of teaching bonsai is this the demons the demo the demonstration of the technique to where you have this very much you know before and after. Um, which does give rise to, you know, not the best practice for the tree where you're trying to <laughs> right. sort of do it all in one one sitting. And so it can kind of lead to some misinformation. But yeah, it's a very for performative, you know, um, endeavor. And for teachers who are, um, I guess that's sort of one reason I think why someone like John Naka was, became so popular is he was very engaging and very... Um, entertaining and very personable, and some other other bigger teachers um, who who maybe were as as significant if uh, as John, but are a little less recognized, like uh, Yuji Yoshimura, who was a Japanese-born um, bonsai practitioner on the East Coast, who was a little bit more subdued and and uh, you know restrained and sort of more in the the Japanese approach to to sort of self-expression. Um, isn't quite as widely known or acknowledged. So yeah, you have to have, um, you know, uh, a, a big personality to kind of be a, a bonsai <laughs> teacher, which for people who who know and watch Mirai can understand that. 
Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I think it's from what I understand, John Naka was a bit of, was a showman. Right. Exactly. Um, Funny, and could I, tell jokes, I and he was able to adapt himself to this kind of culture uh-huh. where you need to entertain people. Him. Because uh-huh. in Japan, you know, you learn by doing, and often a teacher is like, you know, you, you learn by doing, you learn by repetition. And you don't necessarily learn by words, but it's kind of an embodied practice. Right. And, um, well, and so, I, yeah, and I just wanted to add to like the actually, and I'm not fully sure of this, but I think though the the model of the demo is much much. It was not a common element of Japanese bonsai. This idea of of doing um, even like clubs per se, like it was very much more the hierarchical, you know, teacher and the the deshi. Who were maintaining, and then you probably you had would have clients that you would then be helping care for their collections. But this kind of like Western approach to education, where like we're going to teach you how to do something, wasn't really the way. And that's sort of where I was referencing Yuji Yoshimura. He was the first one during the um, during the occupation years in Japan who actually established the first like. Class, bonsai class where we have a teacher and he's teaching students in that more formalized kind of western style whereas before if you wanted to learn bonsai you had to become an apprentice and you had to spend you know two years weeding and then right. you would learn how to water and it's it was observation this, right it's it was this very much more kind low of communication <laughs> yeah exactly and so so yuji is credited with sort of seeing this opportunity for teaching bonsai to Westerners who were in country as a part of the, the occupying force from the, the military post-World War II. And there was, you know, and this is where I'd go to the, the, the women in bonsai, is a lot of his first students, and almost exclusively his first students, were women because they were the spouses of military personnel, ambassadors, you know, that were all in Japan as part of their now rebuilding efforts. Um, and so... That was sort of where this initial interest in bonsai sort of started with the West and that proximity to Japanese culture, which then translated back to 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 the U.S. And then he eventually immigrated from Japan and became the curator at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where then he continued this model of teaching and sort of the very first sort of early classes that were being offered by like a botanic garden or an organization were at the the Brooklyn Botanic Garden through Yuji sort of teaching these these um you know uh these new inter- interested parties in bonsai so um anyway it's another little connection point to the war well that's funny because um um when i was i was just thinking now that our um story about the cement bonsai pots is um brings in fred capella mm. who is this uh white guy who was wanting to be a student of a immigrant man, Mitsuo Fujimoto, mm. um, who was born in Japan and ended up in the Sacramento area. And anyway, Fred went to uh, Mitsuo's house and said, will you let me be your student? And and um, Mitsuo said, come back in a year. He said, how many trees do you have? How many bonsai do you have? Oh, three or four. Come back in a year. So it was like, you know, the first test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then a year to the day later, Fred shows up and knocks on the door and says, do you remember me? And he says, yes, you can come in now. And then Fred said it took him three years to water, three mm-hmm. years to learn how to water. So mm-hmm. it's exactly mm-hmm. kind of an mm-hmm. example of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, they developed a friendship. And Mitsuo ended up giving Fred his two cement pots mm-hmm. from that he made in camp at Tule Lake. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and we're um, we're really grateful that those pots are actually here on display at the museum as part of the exhibit, and those have been on loan um, by the by the Huntington um, Library and Gardens. Um, so, so yeah, if, if people are in the area or have a desire to sort of engage with um, this exhibit, um, we're we're planning on having it continue through um, October of this year um, in lieu of COVID last year, shortening our our exhibit schedule. Um, we plan on. Um, this being our our main exhibit through 2021 so um so yeah i would hopefully people are encouraged to yes, yes. at least access this information online we have a lot of videos um that we've produced kind of um showcasing it i know mariah's um we're grateful that for that you guys are here to yep, yep. producing we'll your own video let people to know help. <laughs> spread exactly. the word um and then uh if anyone is in the the seattle area or hopefully um as we all feel more comfortable traveling um yep. this summer um, to come visit and and see this for yourselves because yeah. I think it's such a special time, both from from a historical standpoint, referencing the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, mm-hmm. the 80th anniversary, as Nancy said, of the signing of EO 9066, and then the just our own current uh, state as a country as we're wrestling with um, systemic racism, not only against African Americans but also now against Asian Americans. Yep. Um, this was not part of our plan to sort of have this exhibit touching on these themes right. sort of at this point in our sort of of our of our nation's sort of history but here we are and i think um you know it's such a great opportunity for us to start to pick up and 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 confront these these truths and especially for the bonsai community and as a bonsai practitioner now i'm having to I, i'm much more now a cognizant of you know how and where these trees came from and and how I'm here now too as a result of right. of a lot of of uh, overcoming of hardships and overcoming of of hurt and pain in order yeah. to teach uh you know teach bonsai and for myself to then be able to access that information kind of like we're saying the lineage of teachers right it's like mm-hmm. i bet ev- almost everyone and probably at in their bonsai teacher family tree I would imagine they have someone in there that experienced incarceration. Yeah, yeah, it comes mm-hmm. back. It's mm-hmm. this is a a really immersive experience being here, and um, I I was blown away just by every tree that I saw in this exhibit. And um, I'm thank you so much, Nancy. This information um, I've learned so much today, um, and I I can't wait to share this information with more people. The the, the personal testimonials, um, you know, the artifacts, the the tangible objects that were able to be preserved, um, just have such a powerful meaning. And I, I really appreciate, you know, both of you guys this time, mm-hmm. PBM and, and Nancy, thank you so much for this. And Nancy, um, where, where can people find information about you and, and 50 objects? Can, do you want to share a little bit about your projects really quickly? Um, we're on, thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, our website is www.50objects.org. And we're working on object number 21. And um, we've done everything from a pocket watch, a gold pocket watch, to um, the wooden nameplates that hung on the barracks, um, to the cement pots that were made at Tule Lake, and our only living object, the Demoto maple. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're trying to do is humanize the history and kind of go beyond the materiality of um, what we can see in front of us, because that's the part that you know, we don't know. So sure. sure. We'll, we'll definitely, uh, we'll include your link in our uh, podcast description. So listeners uh, oh, just and I should say down. that it's sponsored by the national park service program oh, cool. mm-hmm. for Japanese American confinement sites, which is um, 
government funding to help educate about this part of American history. Well, that's, yeah, that's it's a good great site. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, congratulations on nearing the halfway point. And uh, I always look forward to seeing, you know, what, what object is next um, on your website. So continue to watch that one too. So yeah, Nancy, thank you so much. You're such a treasure to, uh, to me and to helping, uh, yeah, just shed more light on the history of bonsai and amongst other things. Um, but uh, yeah, extremely grateful for your um, taking the time out of your schedule to, to um, talk with us this afternoon. All right. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks. Bye, Bye. Eve. Bye, Aaron. Bye. Bye. Bye.